This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Adam Alter is an associate professor of marketing and psychology at New York University's Stern School of Business and a New York Times bestselling author of two great books on addictive behavior, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, and Drunk Tank Pink and Other Expected Forces that Shape How We Think, Feel, and Behave. Adam's academic research focuses on behavioral economics and human judgment and decision-making, with a particular interest in the effects of environmental cues on human cognition and behavior, how we think and act. He's written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and Wired, among many other publications. And he's shared his ideas at the World Economic Forum, and with dozens of companies, including Google, Microsoft, Amazon, LinkedIn, as well as with numerous design and ad agencies around the world. In this episode, we discuss the insidious, incredibly powerful ways by which new technologies have created, perhaps in an unintended way, behavioral addictions that negatively affect our social lives, our inner lives, our financial lives, and more. We explore some of the ways that, as individuals, we can try to combat these forces in our own lives by first becoming aware of them and then making choices and changes that become, well, better habits. Adam talks about how European and Asian countries are well ahead of the United States in legislating and curtailing the damage being wrought by companies whose main aim is to be making money for shareholders as opposed to building products that improve our lives. Whew. This is important stuff. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I'd much appreciate it if you would rate it, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, so others are then more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. So now, without further ado... Get set to listen to and learn from a brilliant scholar who has done significant research on how our screen time affects our inner lives, our social lives, and our pocketbooks, and what we can do to become more aware of these insidious effects so we can combat them to live more fully. It's Adam Alter. Adam Alter, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, and I really admire your research, and I'm glad you're taking the time to share its, uh, its implications for our listening audience. So you're a marketing professor, marketing and psychology professor. So in, in layman's terms, you study how ad people get us 
to look at things, listen to things on billboards, on the radio, on TV, online, and elsewhere with newer and better, quote-unquote, technology and how we mere mortals respond to them, presumably with action to purchase or consume. As I understand it, what you've been finding is that new technologies that nearly all of us are using so much of the time have been specifically designed to to addict to be addicted to hook us is this is this marketing gone awry is this a, a brilliant feature or some sort of immoral fatal bug or is, is it something else what is this thing that is now in our lives in our midst how do you how do you think about what this thing is today I think it's largely a sort of runaway train. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when, when Mark Zuckerberg was in his dorm room and he was designing Facebook, I don't think he imagined it would become what it is today. I think that's true mm-hmm. of almost every everything that we spend our time on on screens. No one designing those products in their early days could have imagined they'd become what they have become. And I think like a city that gets out of control, that turns into this maze, I think that's sort of what's happened with the landscape we encounter on screens. It's really, it's, it's just, it's, a lot of these different platforms have, have evolved in ways that have, have run way beyond the control that their, their masters can exert over them. That's mm. the first thing. The second thing is once they realize that's happening, mm-hmm. it's very easy if you speak to the right people and if you know the right research and if you can access the right behavioral data to get a sense of what leads people to spend an extra marginal minute here or there on their, on their screen on the platform. Mm-hmm. And so when every company on every platform is doing that, at the same time, it's this war for your attention. And so the result is... is uh, A war. A war, I think so, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, attention's limited. As you said, people spend hours of their time every day on screens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're spending a, an extra minute on Facebook, that's a minute that YouTube doesn't have. It's a minute that Instagram, I guess Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook are one and the same now. But all these companies are competing for that limited attention. And so they're doing everything in their power to, to, to grab your attention and not let go of it. So there's, there's definitely, in answer to your question, I think there's a big moral component here mm-hmm. um, that the intention is not to create products that are good for us or that make us happy or better off. It's to create products that are impossible for us to resist. Adam, you're depressing me. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a dark note. I mean, there, there are... There are silver linings, um, but... Uh, no, we could stay with the dark note because yeah. that, I mean, a big part of what you've done with your remarkable books, um, and especially the, the more recent Irresistible, which is, I think, recently out in paperback, is to document what behavioral addiction is, um, how it's engin- how the engineers of these tools, let's call them, uh, w- take advantage of the knowledge, uh, the the vast knowledge that's available now about behavioral addiction um, and and where this is all headed, uh, offering some ideas for solutions, which I definitely want to get to in the back half of our conversation, but I want to dig into what you have uh, documented in your your remarkable books and research on... um, how this all works. So I'm, I'm hoping we can begin with that. Yeah, I, so I think there are two big things that, that these companies do. Okay. Uh, the, the first thing is they have theories. There's a sort of toolbox you can draw from. And as you're designing a product, you can build those tools into the products. And these are basic tools that, that tap into very, very basic psychology, things like giving people 
random, unpredictable rewards. Mm-hmm. So we, we know everything, every animal from a, you know, from a cockroach to a rat to a monkey to a human responds the same way to variable rewards. We find mm-hmm. them really hard to resist. So you basically build that in somewhere into your model of how people interact with your program. If you get it sometimes, the reward, but not all the time, you're just going to keep going after it. Yeah, it turns out winning every time is incredibly boring. People people get old, it gets old, people get bored. Mm-hmm. They want to have that element of uh, of uncertainty built into what they do. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Um, there, there are other tools as well. They, you know, building in goals. You know, the idea of reaching a round number, a thousand friends, a thousand likes, a thousand follows, things like that. Um, making everything as social as possible, because as soon as you introduce a social element, as as say Instagram did to photo taking. What happens then is there's a, a social contract that means that you are expected to respond to, to what other people are doing. And when you send something out into the universe, there's a lot of social anxiety. You want to see how people are going to respond to what you're sending out as well. And all of that keeps you glued, and so you keep coming back for more. Um, so that's the first thing, is building in these, these tried and tested tools mm-hmm. that psychologists have known about for some time. The mm-hmm. second thing is you have access to just incredible reams of data mm-hmm. and sometimes billions of users. So what that means is you can, you can test new features. You know, if, I, if I'm designing Facebook's user interface and I decide, you know, maybe this particular button should be moved over a couple of inches, let's see what that does. I can release that particular version of the screen to, mm-hmm. you know, three million people and see if they spend marginally more time on Facebook because of that button or they hit that button more often. And if you do that on every platform, what happens is over time, each platform evolves to become a sort of weaponized version of its original form. So it's maximally difficult to resist that version. And it's it's not even based on a theory or an idea of what will make people hooked. It's just that if you get enough data and you have enough variation mm-hmm. that you test, you will get there eventually. Mm-hmm. So, so the tools become increasingly successful at capturing our mind share, our attention in this in this war for it, uh, and that and that's that's part of what's run amok here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so. I think that's that's exactly the issue. That um, you know, that as these these products become more addictive, it's not that they're becoming better products because that's really the sort of very basic theory of business, right? If you make a good product, people will want to use it, and the better the product, the more time they'll devote to it. But these are products that are not getting better. They're just getting stickier. And that's, that's the problem. When that stickiness runs at 1,000 miles an hour while the product's goodness for you stays where it was originally or gets even less, you know, it becomes less wholesome in a sense, hmm. that discrepancy is a real problem and it, it leads people to be pretty unhappy. So can you give us a, a, just a brief um, explanation for what behavioral addiction actually is? Yeah, you know, a hundred years ago, if you thought about addiction, it always involved substances. You had to ingest right. something into your body. Mm-hmm. And if you told people a hundred years ago, as chemists were becoming more sophisticated in designing drugs that, that we now know to be very difficult to resist, that one day behaviors themselves without any any drug or any substance would be so carefully crafted that they too would be addictive. Those people would have said that's crazy. Mm. And And it first started happening a while ago with gambling, with slot machines. Um, but what's happened in the last, I'd say, 20, 25 years is that the number of behaviors on screens that we interact with that are hard for us to resist has risen. The definition of behavioral addiction very broadly is something that we want to do very strongly in the short term. We compulsively want to do it. But in the long run, it's actually bad for us in, in one of several senses. It can affect our social lives. Mm-hmm. It can affect our psychological health. It can affect our physical health or it can affect our financial well-being. Mm-hmm. And that definition suits and fits a huge number of the things we do on screens, 
for you know anywhere between mm-hmm. 35 and 55 percent of the adult population. This is a huge and incredibly damaging epidemic. You must be, uh, you must have a lot of fans at at uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm, I'm... <laughs> You know, I've been trying to speak to people at a lot of these big tech companies for a long time, and and it's it's interesting. There's a big range. Some of them are very receptive, and they want to build these ideas into their platforms. They care a lot about well-being. Yeah. And I think others others are doing their best to put up a a curtain that's hard to penetrate, and I haven't really got very deeply into that. But yes, absolutely, it's it's hard to it's hard to make a dent. Oh man, that. I'm sorry, you, you got me again, Adam. <laughs> that's, that's so distressing because what you hear when, uh, when executives of some of these companies, the leading companies are brought before the U.S. Congress, for example, are all kinds of statements about the, uh, the pro-social aims that they, uh, that they are pursuing. And what you're telling me is something contradicting that, Yes. Yeah, and I, I, it's tricky. I think with any large organization, what starts out being possibly a labor of love or mm-hmm. you know something that's very idealistic like the idea behind facebook connecting the world there's something really romantic about that that's a lovely idea but in practice as it gets big enough and as it starts to to invade every area of our lives that the kind of connection we're getting from facebook and the the number of minutes we spend every day on the platform means that it's eroding the real and important connections we have socially with people mm-hmm. in the real world mm-hmm. so um you know, I, I don't necessarily think the people who design these products are, are completely terrible people. Mm-hmm. I think they they find themselves in a position now where their business model is inconsistent with human well-being, and now they're all grappling with that. And some of them are introducing mm-hmm. changes that are just large enough to placate the population at large. Things like, um, you know, Jack Dorsey at Twitter is now talking about removing some of the metrics that we find so hard to resist, like removing some of the numbers like how many people have liked a tweet or um, how many people have retweeted if you remove those numbers it turns out people spend less time on any platform and he's talked about because those reinforcements aren't there to keep you going uh in in producing and responding exactly yeah so you know these these changes do something um but i think at at heart if you look at the real sort of engine behind a lot of these these platforms, um, they, they don't want to do anything that compromises attention too greatly because then it'll they'll cede it to some other screen-based organization, and so that's uh, that's the the tussle for these uh, these CEOs and tech titans. Uh, I'm I'm curious to know more about that, but I want to also give listeners a, a bit more of the background on what behavioral addiction is and how uh, the designers, the engineers, uh, the developers are are um, are are creating and continually improving their products to ensure that they are maximally uh, sticky. Uh, so is there more to say then about uh, our general understanding of what behavioral addiction is and how it how it's uh, how it's built into um, the products that we're talking about? I think there are a number of examples that really sort of illuminate the point. Uh-huh. Um, one is people for a long time were clamoring for different ways of reacting to posts on Facebook. You had the like button forever from 2006. I think it was 2006. Mm -hmm. And people for many years had said, what if I don't like something? If someone posts something sad, I don't want to say I like it. If it makes (laughs) me angry, I don't want to say I like it. Mm -hmm. And so Facebook said, you know, we're listening and we've decided to do what you've asked for. We're we're going to give you a whole lot of different emojis. You can respond with Mm -hmm. a smiley face, but you can respond with a frowny face, with tears, with um, you know, a whole, whole range of different emotional responses. Now, as consumers, a lot of people saw that and said, that's fantastic. 
that's giving us exactly what we're asking for. What it's actually doing, though, is it gives Facebook a sense of how people are responding, a much finer-grained sense. Mm. And so what they can do is they can say, it turns out if a post makes people angry, which is what they found, we are much more engaged with it than if it makes us feel any other emotion. So wow. if you can make people angry for longer and sp having them spend more time in that state, they will spend more time glued to the screen, they'll be more engaged, they will post more, they will respond to posts more, which is un it's a really negative message, but it's all driven by the access they have to this new kind of data. We were asking for something, they gave it to us, and it allowed them to access a certain kind of psychological state that we were experiencing that showed them we were engaged and why we were engaged. So people are more likely to be posting content that elicits angry responses. Yeah, and more than that, I think even Facebook has now you know, designed algorithms that will show you the kinds of content that will make you angry. And that's part of this echo chamber idea. You know, if I'm angry about something and other people are angry about it too, and I can read their posts and that fuels my anger further, then that's, that's exactly what a company like Facebook wants. They want you to be angry, and they want you to be angry around other people who share your ideas so you all get together and kind of stew in this, this, uh, this field of anger and um, spend more time glued to the screen. And it just builds on itself, and that's, uh, that's one of the origins of this uh, echo chamber concept. The echo chamber concept being what exactly? It, it's basically the idea that when you spend time... Um, you know, there are billions of people on Facebook. There are a lot of them who are... A little bit like you there are some who are very much like you and then there are plenty who are very different from you and one of the ideas that um, mark zuckerberg talked about for a long time early on was you can meet people who are different from you you know it'll expose you to new ideas the echo chamber is the idea that um, the, the way the algorithm is designed you mm -hmm. are going to be seeing a lot of people who agree with you instead of showing you ideas that are diverse and different and interesting and challenging your beliefs which it turns out sends you away from the platform they're going to show you a lot of stuff that just reaffirms, confirms your beliefs. If you believe in a conspiracy theory and you've shown that through some of your online behaviors, mm -hmm. it'll be fed. And, um, you know, the fire under that conspiracy theory will be fed further. And you'll see more posts that confirm it for you, more, more of that sort of nonsense. And as a result, people get more and more into it and they end up spending more time on the screen. And that echo chamber idea is that you always just have your existing ideas reinforced rather than having your horizons broadened. And then this does occasionally, with tragic consequences, spill into the world beyond screens, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, we're seeing that now with increasing frequency from my read of you know the everyday media. How are, how are you seeing that, if that is a point of focus for your uh, research? I mean, I think there are, there's a huge rise in anti-scientific beliefs at the moment, uh, beliefs about global warming, beliefs about vaccinations. Mm -hmm. um, and a huge amount of that comes from meeting other people who agree with you. If you're, if you're an isolated individual who doesn't believe that vaccinations work or who doesn't mm -hmm. believe that global warming is real, mm -hmm. and you don't meet other people who feel that way, you can't get together in a physical sense or in a virtual sense, and you can't fuel each other, then th those kinds of ideas, if they're marginalized enough, tend to die out. But if you have a small community and everyone gets together, they, they engage each other, they fuel each other, then that, that movement grows strength. Uh, it grows in strength. And I think that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what's happening now with a lot of these, these movements that at one stage were seen as fringe movements or fringe ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of wind in the sails of those movements now. And they're getting a kind of legitimacy through, through I think, um, screen technologies largely. And, it, and in part, if I understand what you're saying, 
this is because of uh, the the evidence that's that's emerging from the fine grained uh, analytics that that's that are available to Facebook and other. Uh, well, I guess it's Facebook, Twitter, and maybe Instagram. Uh, that that show how creating these bubbles um, is is uh, how how it's effective in keeping people hooked on the site, which is the intention of the site to keep them there rather than improve their lives. Is that what you're concluding? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think anytime you use a platform and you spend a long time on it, and it's free. There's a sense uh, in which you feel you're the customer. You know, you're demanding certain things from Facebook. Like, I'd like to have different emojis. I'd like to behave in certain ways. Um, and I'd like you to make it possible for me to respond in ways that, that appeal to me. And so you feel that you're the customer demanding something from a provider of some product. But the, t- the truth is you're not the customer. You are the product. The customer is the advertising. Because you're the, ad- the advertisers mm-hmm. who come onto Facebook say, we want to know how many hours a day is each person spending on Facebook, mm-hmm. how fine-grained can we get when we want to target people. Like if I, if I have a product and I'm looking for people who, who don't believe that vaccination works or that it causes autism or something like that, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm looking for people of a particular demographic and I want to put those two things together, I can do that on Facebook. I can micro-target in a way I can't really do very easily or haven't been able to do until pretty recently. That's very powerful. And so creating these little echo chambers, being able to understand each person as they interact with the the program in a very fine-grained way is exactly what what Facebook's trying to do. And and, and this, of course, can be applied not just for the, the commercial interests of people trying to sell soap or razor blades, but political groups who are trying to uh, subvert democracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that was the idea behind Cambridge Analytica, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, if we know that you are a particular kind of person, if we know a little bit about your personality, we know that when we are trying to reach you on an issue like gun control, um, you know, we, we could give, based on the personality dimensions, we can divine from the way you've been behaving on Facebook. We know that you're the kind of person who cares a lot about protecting your family. That's very important to you. Mm-hmm. So when we send you a message, it's going to have that flavor to it that we want to, you know, the, the Second Amendment needs to be protected and it needs to be protected because you need to be able to protect your family. Mm-hmm. For other people, it might be just recreational hunting is really important to them. And so for that person, they don't get the same message about protecting the family because that doesn't make sense for them. They get a slightly different variation of the, of the message that says something like, you know, don't let people strip your rights when it comes to hunting. That's an important part of, your, of, of what it means to be free in this country. Liberty is all about being able to hunt or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of that micro-targeting comes from, from observing the kinds of behaviors people exhibit online. And, uh, and then it's as much about ideas and, and especially political ideas as it is about selling products. And, and so what is the moral obligation of, of uh, the companies that are providing these, these platforms in, in I, your view? Think, and what do your students tell you about that? I'm curious. But first, what, what's your sense? I, I think it's colossal. I mean, I think they have a significant moral obligation in the same way that, you know, companies for a very long time were polluting waterways, polluting the air. And they did that with impunity for a, for a very long time. And governments eventually, with a lot of pressure, stepped in and said, you know what, this is not okay. Here are some ways of dealing with that. We're either going to fine you or you're going to have to pay a tax right. or we're going to outlaw this particular kind of behavior or mm-hmm. this particular solvent that you've been using or whatever. You know, they ultimately said, 
you can keep making the money you're making, but there's going to be a penalty because what you're doing is creating externalities mm-hmm. that are really bad for the population at large. So you've got to pay. You've got to pay. And I, I think that's absolutely true of companies now in the digital world. Mm-hmm. We aren't quite there yet. But Europe is ahead of us, before. right? Europe is way ahead of us. Um, even parts of East Asia are ahead of us as well. Uh, I, I think um, it's possible that in time we'll, we'll catch up. But Western Europe is, is uh, very forward thinking on this issue. Northern Europe as well. They've been thinking about these issues for a long time. They've introduced a number of pieces of government legislation. Uh, we're nowhere near doing that in the U.S. But this is something that, um, that some governments are, uh, are absolutely getting involved in. And I think they recognize that there's a moral imperative here that if you if you are making money by making other people or the population at large less well-off in some sense, you have to rectify that. There needs to be some remedy. And that's coming in the form of legislation, whether it's taxes or outlawing certain practices, mm-hmm. that's starting to happen. And I, think, I think it's the right way for things to go. In the long run, that's the happy equilibrium. Um, that if you want to keep doing what you're doing, um, certain of those really damaging practices shouldn't be allowed. Like certain hooks that are built into the products should not be allowed at all. Um, and you know, I, I can go into some of those more specifically, but basically, yes. that's that's the basic idea. And then, um, yeah, I, beyond that, if you if you are going to do them, do certain things that are, are bad for the population at large. You need to pay some sort of tax as a result. What's the what's the most prominent in your thinking of the uh, uh, of the features or, or functions that must be done away with immediately if you had your if you had your way? I'll just list two. One of them is um, on Snapchat, there's a thing called Snapchat streaks. Snapchat streaks basically say that every time you communicate with someone on a particular day and they communicate back with you, that logs as one communication. Mm -hmm. And if you do that day after day, the streak grows in size. So there's evidence that teenagers now will have a streak with a friend of, say, 10 days or 20 days or 30 days. And the, the nature of a streak is as it gets longer, there's more to lose by losing the streak or breaking the streak. And so friends will end up giving their passwords when, to other friends when they, uh, when they travel so that they can keep Just the to keep the street going. Yeah, which clearly is not about consumer well-being, right? This is bad for them, that they, they just can never really disconnect. Um, I, yeah, I think that's, that's the most prominent example mm. um, for me. You're, you're killing me here with, with your you know, incisive analysis and wonderful examples of how this, how this world has changed in a, in a way that is really quite scary. Um, but we need to learn more because you, know, you can't change something unless you understand it, right? So uh, what else is on your list of the most horrible features of online experiences that are wreaking havoc on our fragile souls and minds i think one of the most damaging is the in-app purchases that come especially when you play certain video games so a video game will be free you'll buy it right it'll be free you don't have to pay anything you'll play for 10 or 12 or 14 or 16 hours you know you'll devote hours of your life to this product and then you hit a wall and what you learn is that in order to continue playing for the second half of the game you have to pay a certain amount of money to buy a weapon or to get past the boss or whatever it is you have to do mm-hmm. if you end up having to part, part ways with a certain amount of money. Um, this isn't just in games that involve quests and fighting. This is true in games that involve all sorts of different kinds of behaviors. And these in-app purchases capitalize on the idea that humans hate the, the idea that they've spent time on something only not to reach the final goal, the mm-hmm. end. 
Mm-hmm. The sunk uh, cost is too much cost, to bear. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that, I think, is really insidious. It's the idea that you're getting something free, and then they, they you know, suddenly at this point, way down the track, you realize this game in total, if you're going to finish it, is going to cost you sometimes tens, hundreds, even th- some people report thousands of dollars. Um, so it's that, the oldest trick in the book. I mean, that's that's what carnival barkers have been doing for years, getting people to come and play a game that looks really easy, really easy, really easy, until you get to the finish line for the payoff, and it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the idea, the theory isn't new. What's new is that this is now being delivered to, you know, billions of people mm-hmm. um, in, in billion, hundreds of thousands of different games. And so I think these in-app purchases which are hidden from you are a very insidious feature insidious because they cause you to spend money that you shouldn't yeah yeah they damage your financial well-being and you end up d- devoting a huge amount of, of money to to games that you thought in the beginning would be free and then they turn out not to be mm-hmm. i think that's that's a, a pretty negative one um i think that you know other features much more broadly the the introduction of the like button for Facebook in 2006 was was the the smartest and most important decision that Facebook ever made because a static platform where you could just learn about what jobs your friends had and whether they were moving to a new town suddenly became a way for people to interact. It turned the platform into a social experience. Mm -hmm. And that's true now of obviously Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram. uh, All of these are social experiences. And they've all created these norms about how quickly you're supposed to respond and how you're supposed to respond. And, you know, if you... If a friend posts something and you just hit the like button instead of commenting, that's seen as a slight. If you don't comment at all, that's that's terrible. And if I post something and I get zero responses to it, you know, that's a form of, of uh, social opprobrium. That's major criticism, and that feels really horrible. You're a loser. You're a loser, yeah. And if you get enough of those posts in a row, you know, people have become very, very depressed over it. Mm-hmm. So I think um, just the way these products have evolved um, is, by and large, this engages you and so it's good for the the people creating the products but it's terrible for the users and we know I mean, we've had a number of people on this show over the over the years the most recent uh, more recently especially talking about the growing evidence uh, from clinical psychologists and others who deal with the the consequences of uh, these anxiety provoking and depressing worlds in which people are, uh, especially young people who are more vulnerable, are are led to feel just worse about themselves and their lives as a result of the dynamics you're describing here. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, there's uh, there are a lot of consequences. Bullying is on the rise. Um, even teen suicide is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a huge epidemic of loneliness. There, there are a lot of, of uh, fairly negative consequences. And, and, and I, the loneliness, of course, is the great paradox, is it not? Exactly, yeah. This engine that was designed to connect people and designed to ensure that we could always reach other people uh, has, has caused this epidemic of loneliness. And I think it's certainly true if someone lives on the other side of the world. I have family in Australia a very long way mm-hmm. from where I live. And mm-hmm. it's, it's wonderful that my two young kids are able to see their grandparents and their uncle and lots of other family members. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a miracle. Yes. Um, but the other side of that is there are people sitting in the same room texting each other. And obviously the quality of the contact they have is vastly diminished for the availability of these screens. Absolutely. Yeah. So... We could go on speaking about the terrors, uh, and and you 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 know you lay them out in irresistible in a in a way that you know makes it makes it okay to to take it in and because you feel like you're learning about 
what the issue is that you're dealing with in your life. And it's a great service that you've done uh, with that book. But let us, um, you know, before we, this is too much of a cliffhanger here, I fear, which I know is one of the the hooks, but we got to get to like, what can, what can a person do? So um, let's get to that. What, what are some of the things that you personally do or that you have learned through your research are useful ways of containing the insidiousness of some of the um, processes that you have described so well? I think one of the things I've done is I've changed the way I frame what I'm trying to do. You know, people talk a lot about self-control. They talk about um, the need for individual control. We all have a choice. We can decide not to use screens. You know, to some extent that's true, um, although it's very, very difficult to, to work and communicate with people and travel and so on without, say, an email address. So it's, right. not, it's not easy to do. You mm-hmm. could do it. It would just be an uphill battle. And so instead of thinking of this as a self-control battle, you know, I'm going to keep my phone in my pocket and just not look at it for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. I'm, going to, I'm going to keep it nearby but switch off the screen or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have to do is you have to, to disempower the phone by making it inaccessible. If you ask Americans, um, American adults, uh, 75% of them will tell you that 24 hours a day, the entire day, every hour of the day, even in the middle of the night, they can reach their phones without moving their feet. So, you know, phones are not quite wearable. They're not implanted in us, but not yet. that kind of power. Not yet. They aren't yet, but they, they, they have that same kind of power. You know, that's around the corner maybe, but because they're always accessible, they always kind of demand our attention. Mm-hmm. There's an old principle in psychology known as propinquity, which is this idea that the things that are closest to you in physical space exert the biggest effect on your psychological experience of the world. So if you mm-hmm. let a phone sit in your pocket 24 hours a day or under your pillow or on your nightstand, it's always going to be occupying some part of your psychological experience. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that I do and the best thing you can do is to section off parts of the day that are for spending time outdoors in natural environments yep. or having a face-to-face conversation or reading a book or doing something. For a lot of people, the easiest way to do this is to say, you know, every day I eat dinner for half an hour, whether I'm alone with other people mm-hmm. at home, in a restaurant, wherever it may be. And during that half an hour, or however long it may be, that is sacred screen-free time, no matter what happens. And then you can expand it. And what's interesting is people find that very difficult at first. It's like a form of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And then they start to say, you know what, I really look forward to it. I crave it. And that's a part of the day that I think about for the rest of the day, hmm. because I really want that time to disconnect. And then they expand it and do things like, this, this is one of the things I try to do. Mm-hmm. On the weekend with my kids, I, I want to use the phone as a camera, but I don't want the intrusions that come from having a smartphone. So I put the phone on airplane mode and I just take pictures. It becomes mm-hmm. a camera and a dumb phone, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that from nine to five on a Saturday. And uh, that changes the whole complexion of the day. And if you do that on Saturday and Sunday, then your whole weekend becomes a weekend like we had before we had phones. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty magical. It, cha- it does change how you experience the world. Of course, of course. Uh, we've talked to Cal Newport on the show recently. I'm sure you must know his approach to this. Uh, you know, what he recommends, uh, just just to, for listeners to briefly recap, if you didn't hear that episode or see his uh, stuff, uh, which is now um, you know gaining a lot of uh, a lot of traction, the concept of decluttering, take, taking a, a 30 day uh, complete shutdown so that you can then assess and be more consciously intentional about what you bring back in in terms of uh, 
online uh, you know tools digital tools of various kinds what do you think does that does that make sense or is it uh, too much uh, a bridge too far for too many people yeah i you know i think it's a great idea it's a great idea in theory and the, the interesting thing about cal is that he's managed to stay off social media in a way that most people haven't so he's he's you know he's actually living that that experience and i think that's that's why what he says carries such weight um, and he's very successful and very well-rounded. And so I think there's a lot to, to learn from that idea. I think for some people that's a little too much. And so starting small, I do the sort of opposite. He's talking about doing something really big and then clawing, clawing back from there a little bit. Right. Um, I think the, the other way works a little better for most people who are overwhelmed by the idea of going completely off tech uh-huh. and off screens. Mm-hmm. And that involves really small changes. You know, right. that, that daily change mm-hmm. in, introduces a new habit. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's, that's just an alternative. If you can do what Cal suggests, if mm-hmm. you can go without screens detox for 30 days, it's going to have a more profound effect than just not using screens during dinner time. But I think for a lot of people that may be too much. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, a, it's a valid and I think excellent idea. Yeah, you know, I have my students in my my leadership course, which is about leadership from the point of view of the whole person. One of the things that we do is uh, <clears throat> during a week uh, early in the semester, they're required to spend six hours uh, that they choose completely digital free and then write up what they experience uh, as a result of doing so. And uh, I've done this for the last few years, and uh, this is before I knew about Newport's work, uh, but it just seemed like an obvious uh, thing to try. Um, And yes, the initial response for many people is withdrawal symptoms, people reaching for a phantom phone that's not there because they've put it away or, you know, they're just shaking um, as with the delirium tremors from, uh, you know, the people who are trying to detox from chemical substances. But, you know, once they get past that, the sense of um, wonder, pleasure, you know, sublime joy at seeing a flower, watching, uh, you know, a pair of lovers in the park, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the everyday experiences of the natural world become really quite mesmerizing and, and can really help you sort of recalibrate. Small steps uh, is, you know, to, to just separating the tools from your life can make a big difference for sure. What else have you found is useful and important for people to know about? Yeah, I, I think um, making the, the big sort of umbrella term for making these changes is behavioral architecture. Is that just as an architect would design, you know, a city or a home mm-hmm. or an, any mm-hmm. environment, you you have to design your digital environment in the same way. Um, and so, you know, sometimes that involves removing the the screen from your life completely. The, the other big thing is to, to change the screen itself so that it's not as, as weaponized as it tends to be. One of the things I do is I'll move every app that I use often to the back of my phone. I'll create like five screens back. Uh-huh. All, the, all the utilities that I get the most use and happiness from will mm-hmm. be on the front page, and then all the stuff that I find impossible to resist. That's part of that <laughs> script where you go through over and over. I'll check Twitter, then Instagram, then mm-hmm. Facebook, then Twitter, and so on. All of that is as far away from from uh, the front homepage as possible. Mm-hmm. And another critical thing to do is to keep changing where they are. Hmm. Make them hard to hard to access. Set up your own little barriers that make them difficult mentally to access, and you're less likely to just lapse into hmm. that kind of automatic script. So if they if they're all in a folder that's in, on the fifth page of your phone, separate them into five folders on different pages. So you can't just jump between them too easily. 
George is calling from Atlanta. Hey, George, how can we help? Hey, good evening, guys. Uh, so, you know, I, I noticed recently my uh, father-in-law came in, is in town from New York visiting. And, uh, you know, my father-in-law is, you know, I would say late 70s, right? I've noticed that he's on his phone a lot, on social media, on Facebook, just scrolling. And it's a, it's a mindless approach to entertainment or addiction mm-hmm. where he, he doesn't even realize what he's doing. Mm. And um, it's, it's really amazing where over the past two months I've said, I'm on this quite a bit. I need to, I need to gear down, right? Adam, what do you think about what George is, uh, has observed in his life with himself and with his father-in-law? I think that's that's a really interesting idea that, you know, when you are using the phone, it always seems imperative. It's critical what you're doing. You've got to do it. It's got to be done now, whether it's an email or responding to a text or it's just one more thing that I need to check. And and from your perspective, that's how it feels and it feels real. And in the moment, it doesn't feel like there's something wrong with what you're doing. Mm. If you watch someone else using the phone, you realize sometimes it takes that distance to watch someone else scrolling, mm-hmm. scrolling, mm-hmm. tapping, tapping on the screen to realize just how crazy it is that we're all spending three, four plus hours a day doing this. Yeah. And so it's interesting how that happens with a bit of distance, watching someone else in your environment doing what you often do, but don't think of in that way. It, it illuminates for you um, how much of our time it's taking up. That's such an important point. Uh, George, thanks again for calling Work and Life. I really appreciate it. Uh, if you could, Adam, uh, say more about um, this notion of you know what you can learn by observing others uh, because that's one of the things I see in this assignment that I was just describing that I give to my students. Uh, another common theme in their write-ups is you know <clears throat> being off my my smartphone for six hours. I immediately saw how everyone else around me is and how it seems they use it as a social crutch to get out of you know situations that might seem or feel, you know, anxious. So they just retreat into their, into their screens or they just seem to be in a mindless haze. Um, what else can people learn about what they can do to raise their consciousness about what they can change? Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's one, one form of feedback is to watch other people doing what you so often do and to see Mm -hmm. just how it looks from the outside. I think, metrics are very important. You want to try to capture, the first thing is to be aware, right? And that's right. why I wrote the book. And w- one of the ways these, these companies are helping us a little bit is by, by being better about delivering feedback, um, whether it's through apps or whether it's through, you know, Apple's iOS now involves um, pretty comprehensive feedback on how long you're spending on the, on the phone and what you're doing. Yes. That, that's powerful um, to, to get that information, to see that you use your phone you, you mentioned when we opened this that uh, people were spending three hours a day and wondered if that had changed. It's now over four. So, so since you wrote Irresistible, years, what, two years ago it was published? Two years ago. So in two years, it's gone from three hours to over four hours for the average American. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a huge chunk of the waking day that we spend on our phones. Um, and so if you don't know that, if you ask people to estimate, mm-hmm. they estimate an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And they're wrong. Obviously, so the, an hour and a half sounds bad. It sounds nothing like four hours, though. And so it's really important to get objective feedback, and that comes from, from tracking what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then once you have that, you can decide, you know, either this isn't a problem for me or it is a problem for me. And if I feel that I'm spending too long, that's when I can start to enact these behaviors like, mm-hmm. you know, behavioral architecture interventions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's been the impact of Irresistible in brief? I think it's raised some some interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some of the tech companies that are responding to it. Um, a, a number of them have reached out to ask 
You know, the way they ask it is um, we, we have a particular model. We have a lot of shareholders and we need to make, keep making money for them. But how can we, in the process of making money, do better by our consumers? Mm-hmm. Could we introduce interventions that don't co- compromise the bottom line too greatly but, mm-hmm. but also will make people better off? Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that's a really attractive and interesting challenge and an interesting question because it, it recognizes on the parts of these companies that they are, you know, they really are in the business of profit-making more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and until the government comes and says you can't do certain things, they're going to do whatever they can. But I, I like the openness there to to the idea of introducing changes. And so working mm-hmm. with some of these companies has been really illuminating and interesting. And that's one, been one of the effects of Irresistible. So what's the most interesting thing that you've seen on that front that you can talk about? Um, I can't talk about much, unfortunately. Okay. Um, they're very careful as soon of as course. they start working with All them right. on I the other side. shouldn't have like. asked. I knew you were yeah. going to say no, that. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but I know that a lot of people listening are wanting to know, like, who are the good guys and what are they trying to do? Um, so so what's next for you? What is, I'm sure this is consuming a lot of your attention. What do you, what, what's next on your, on your research horizon? Well, it's, it's interesting. So I, the book came out, as you said, two years ago. I could spend every single day at five different schools in the U.S. that have reached out and then go to five different schools the next day and then go to five different schools the next day. If I had the time and all of these schools were located close enough to where I am and I didn't have to travel, um, there's that much interest. I I probably received emails from I don't know how many hundreds or even more than hundreds of schools around the world. And so I I still want to devote a certain portion of my time to speaking to Mm -hmm. especially young people, because I think that's where where the difference is really going to come. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also thinking about this in a much broader sense. Um, This represents a a colossal change in the way we live our lives. Mm -hmm. So we're doing something for four plus hours a day that we didn't used to do. Um, And that change has got me thinking much more broadly about change and about the evolution of the way we spend our time and Mm -hmm. That's what I'm starting to think about for, for book number three. It's going to build on some of these themes, but I want to zoom out and think more broadly about all sorts of the other changes that are, that are affecting us as well. I'm glad to hear that you're focusing on that. If you could tell me what's the key message you bring to schools? Uh, the, the key message is just to give them a whole lot of techniques. The, the biggest thing that I push in schools is, is do away with screens. Um, in the, there is no good reason to use screens unless you're teaching kids how to program, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly valuable function. Beyond that, there should be no iPads in schools. They are a crutch. They don't actually help people learn better. And you're not teaching them to be better learners or thinkers by giving them an iPad. It takes them two minutes to learn how to use it. They can do that when they're done with school. Adam, your work is so important. I really appreciate your taking the time to, to share it with us tonight. How can listeners find out more about your books and, and the work that you're doing? Uh, they can find me on uh, on the web. Um, I've got a, a website that is fairly regularly updated. Um, obviously, reading the book is one way to get a sense of these ideas mm-hmm. more fully. And uh, I do I do tweet from time to time. So that's uh, that's the, the main social media platform that I do use. What's your handle? It's Adam Lee Alter, A-D-A-M-L-E-E-A-L-T-E-R. And the really important and remarkable book is Irresistible. Adam Alter, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. Wow. I hope you found my conversation with Adam Alter of NYU's Stern School of Business to be as informative and useful as I did. James Baldwin, the great novelist and civil rights activist, said... 
Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So we've got a big social problem on our hands. Let's face it, intelligently, with Adam Alter's help. Our screen lives, our experiences with our screens aren't all healthy. Here then is a challenge for you, an invitation to try one of the ideas that you just heard about to see more clearly your life on screen, your time with your screens, and take action within your control to change it for the better. You might look at your phone and move some of your social media apps to the back burner or just move them around regularly. Do anything to make it harder for you to find them so you're less likely to engage, contain it. Maybe you can try a digital detox or Sabbath by putting your phone in airplane mode for some time, some minutes or hours in the evenings or on weekends or some other time. You probably have some other ideas about experiments that you can try to combat the war for your attention and claim more of it for yourself and the things that matter most to you. Do something. See how it affects you. See how it feels for you, for your loved ones, for your performance at work or at school. How is that affected by this small change that you might try? And then let me know what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me directly, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.